When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why do you think when we get together, things tend to go back to this particular frequency? What is that that brings us back to that place? It's interesting with how you have different resonances with different people. Like that embarrassing example, when I would go visit my dad when I was in college, I thought he saw me as this like doughy thing that he was kind of disappointed in. I would look different in the mirror. You know what I mean? Like I would like look in the mirror and feel fatter and useless and weird. And it was, it was just like either because my brain had just decided that's how he saw me. And I was like being yanked into his subjective vortex or because he actually did still see me like that. And there's some kind of thing that can happen around people. You know, like when you get around people who don't like you and all of a sudden you realize you're kind of acting like a dick. Almost like, you know what I mean? Like you're conforming to their expectation that you're whatever. But then when you're around true friends, there's this cool resonance that will happen where, I mean, when I'm around you, when we're hanging out, I'll feel smarter or, you know, I feel more, more myself. It's why in Buddhism, there's this whole emphasis on good association. If you're hanging out with people who are amazing, it elevates you, it lifts you up. Maybe the whole guru system as it's kind of gained negative connotations is just totally unnecessary that like all you're merely doing is trying to gravitate towards more positive constructive influences yeah then like in that version of things the guru represents like the ultimate great friend like the eternal friend and so yeah when you're around them the real thing it it's like whatever the fuck your worldly hang-ups were the being is seeing through all that into the actualized you. It doesn't even see that stuff. And just because you're around a thing like that that doesn't even see that stuff, you stop being able to see it either. The real world example of that is one of my friends got lucky enough to go hang out with one of the Dalai Lama's oracles. Like he has these oracles that channel spirits. And it was an oracle that told the Dalai Lama to like leave Tibet before the Chinese invaded. And he, was very depressed at the time when he went to see this oracle and he said he just walked in the room and the oracle smiled at him and like he said he forgot what he was he couldn't remember why he was sad he couldn't remember why he's depressed he, it was gone it just he couldn't like 
like just being around the being there was no work there was just this sort of like wait what was i upset about? i don't remember why the world was bad because the thing is warping reality just like when you're around an absolute monster all of a sudden you just r realize that you're suddenly becoming hyper aware of how fucked up the world is i think there is a culture of getting high off of people though and sometimes when you run into some people in the spiritual world you it's easy to just be like, you've discovered this intoxicating being that you've grown increasingly addicted to. And, but you know, this is what I love about bhakti yoga is it really is like a kind of, it's such a wild religion that it, it, it does invite a certain form of negligence towards the material universe almost like a, you know what I mean? Like you see a, like the monks that we were seeing in India there, there's some of them who are there just because they're like, parents are making them go to the temples, but then there's some of them that are like wild animals, fully in love with God, fully in love with the divine. I remember when we were in Dharamsala, somebody's talking about how some of the Tibetan monks, the tantric monks would start fucking tourists and they would use whatever their tantric powers are. And the tourists would just get so obsessed with them and so addicted to coming that hard that they wouldn't come home. And people, they would have to send people up there to separate people from these monks that have like worked like hardcore sex magic on them, just blasting them. Cause it, that's the other thing is like with the guru stuff there, or, or, or with any kind of metaphysical, mystical shit in general, for some reason there's what I think is a completely wrong. There's this weird idea that because someone has some telepathy, because someone has some of these cities, because someone can like, read your mind, they're benevolent. In other words, that you have to gain those kinds of abilities, there has to be a sort of benevolence to you. And that's never been the case in any of the mythologies or anything. There's always sorcerers who just learn how to do shit with zero intent of helping anybody but themselves. There are types of gurus that you have to spar with or get something from before you move on to a more benevolent guru. I think so. You get like the worst people that you've ever met in your life. And those people, all you have to do is do the opposite of what they're doing. Think of the very worst person you know, and then reverse what they're doing. And they become the very best person you know. You know what I mean? Like a hyper selfish, self-absorbed person with a hardcore victim narrative who doesn't feel bad about stealing and who is so terrified of their own failure that they would kill they'd be willing to kill then take those qualities and reverse them you know which is a completely fearless person who is selfless in the extreme is like literally interested in people around them in the way that the selfish person is interested in themselves so it's not this fake bullshit listening thing but when they're around people they're like as absorbed into their lives as the selfish dumb shit is absorbed into their existence and so when you're around a person like that, it's, I think it's a little unnerving because it's not common that someone should be so legitimately interested in what's going on with you. And then add to that fearlessness, pure self-sacrifice as a kind of natural result of being fearless. And then you get a guru. You're taking this negative specter that you come across on the path and you're like, wrenching whatever kind of orange juice you can get out of the, the fruit you know you're you're actually just 
knowingly learning from these things that appear as obstacles. I do it in music all the time. I will like meet people who will somehow be in the music industry and I just straight up kind of secretly feel sorry for them because they really should not be dealing with music. They're yeah. just in the industry. They're like selling pants basically. Yeah. And so we'll get in conversations because they'll happen to end up being my project manager for a record. Sure. You know, I'll say, this is probably going to be the title of the record. They're like, mm, I don't like that. I'm like, good, perfect. That's definitely the title. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, this is the image on the front. They're like, mm, that's so, like, off-putting. I'm like, you know, that's definitely the, the image then. Yeah. You know, and this will be the first song. And they're like, that's my least favorite song. Okay, definitely the first song. You know yeah, what I mean? Man. And so you kind of figure out, like, you're not my target market. So I want to defy you. I want to make sure you don't like this. Yeah. You know, so, because that's all I've got around me a lot of the time is people that don't see what I'm doing. So I have to use them for something if I'm trying to, like, get to the end of a project. And, right. they're, and they're sort of, like, standing in my way like a negative guru in the middle of the path. I mean, I've got to figure out how to get around them and, like, learn from it. Right? Yeah. It's just survivalism 101. Yeah. Survivalism alchemy. That's one of the really bizarre things about what I've heard about, like, the CIA, what I've heard about all the, like, weird facets of the U.S. government that are designed on gathering information and manipulating things is that they don't really care what the fuck you are or do. If they think there's some thread of useful information that you have, they will bring you in and extract that information from you. They don't really care. They don't care if you're, like, a drug dealer they don't care if you're a satanist they don't care they don't care they all they care about is data they're just vacuuming up information and there's something in that that's i think very advanced think of the most opinionated people that you know the people who hate all kinds of music except one specific type or the people who are certain in their evasion and hate of 99.9 percent .9 of reality there's just this one tiny little pixel of things that they like, and you just feel sorry for those people. They, they, they're frozen in time, they can't grow. They, you know, there's no way to expand past that. And usually they diligently push back against any possibility that they would have to accept that they were wrong or that this is, it, it's sad. But then you run into like people, they hear something in everything that's really beautiful. A more open way of looking at the world and a weird faith that whatever's popping into your POV is going to help you grow. It's part of my method to be sloppy. Like, mm. I like sloppiness. Cool. First of all, sloppiness was very fashionable when I was young. Yep. It was like the time of sloppiness. It just feels like that kind of exacting mathematical method is going to lead to results that are too similar yeah. They don't behold like a lot of great mystical knowledge in them. They just sound kind of like target practice or something. Yeah. So sloppiness and what I would maybe call like the embracing of arbitrary elements as part of your core approach, shooting from the hip, just literally shotgun bits just going everywhere. Yeah. And then the editing phase you kind of pull together the different bits that you think look good on That's that cool. particular day. Yeah. Right? So you get different results all the time that surprise you in the process. It's not just this yeah. cold mathematical thing. Yeah. 
So sloppiness at the base of everything, meaning if you're a survivalist, you're going down the path. Maybe you don't want to go down the most obvious part of the path. A lot of times that'll make you stumble, fall, and die. But there are times where there's some bizarre attraction inside of the idea that there's a destiny for you. And maybe being loose about what that destiny is, it's going to lead you to a more interesting result. Yeah. Sometimes it's kind of nice to race in and make a really quick bad mistake, a really huge mistake, so that you can see the lay of the land and the situation for what it is. And then your second approach, you make the wisest decision you possibly can. Yeah. You know, but you sometimes want to see what's wrong firsthand by doing it. Sometimes you want to make mistakes just to see what they look like. Yeah. It's a pretty surreal image of you looking in the mirror at your dad's house. That's pretty intense. Yeah. Did you resolve that within his lifetime, or did you always feel those strange, like, residual feelings in his gravitational Scared point? of him. I never stopped being scared of him. You know, having a kid now, it's like, I have to teach my son that it's not okay to randomly slap people or throw, like, rocks at them or they don't know any of that like i have to teach him that the way to ask for things is not to start screaming at someone but is to be like can i have that please just basic stuff like that i have to do that and the method i use to do that is going to show him a lot about me and a lot about how to deal with problems in your own life and so if you ended up with like a a an angry parent or a parent who was like trying to scare you into conformity, you're always going to be afraid of them because when you were a tiny little thing, they thought that by scaring you into being polite, that would save you from trouble down the road. And that just clearly doesn't work because it seems like the kids who had the most violent parents were the ones who ended up in jail. It clearly doesn't work. A lot of these dads try to apply military shit they learned in Vietnam to raising their kids. Like, so they go and they get conditioned by the military. Yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, sir. I will clean their train, sir. And then they come out of there and because they were so conditioned and brainwashed by that, they feel like they've, they'd found some sophisticated method for living in the world. Militarism. And then they try to inject that into their fucking kids. So anyway, yeah. I never got past that. I was always scared of him. Always scared. I, I love the what you're talking about, especially when it comes to making stuff, which is like what Chogyam Trepa Rinpoche called orderly chaos, you know, the, and, and spontaneity. Mm-hmm. And knowing that I know anytime I'm getting technical, it usually means I'm trying to like repeat a thing that I did in some kind of cargo cult mentality. You know what I mean? Oh, if I, if I do this and this and this and this, then maybe the thing that happened that time I made the thing I really liked will happen again. And that's really fucked up when it comes to like drugs. You're like, maybe if I mix this drug with that drug and wake up at this time, then I'll be inspired with another great idea. And all those like methods usually fail completely because if any of them worked, then there would be a foolproof methodology to be inspired. Isn't there a break between two cavemen? We, I feel like we used to talk about this, where one starts hitting on some rocks and performs a rhythm, and then the next one comes along and is like, that's great, 
that's a classic. <laughs> and yeah. so then the next caveman comes along and is like, well, I got to learn how to perform the classics. Yeah. Right? And then the next one comes along and is like, that is bullshit. It's all about improv. Yeah. And then the two schools diverge, right? Right. There's the improv school that's exploring, curious, looking for something new. Yeah. And then there's the traditionalist school that's like, the first caveman with the first rock rhythm was the ultimate rhythm. Yeah, right. Sure. It's in Buddhism, right? You have like all these various schools of Buddhism. You have Theravadan Buddhism. To me, it seems like the strictest form of Buddhism. It's monks who are trying to live exactly the way the Buddha lived. And so it's like they have these uh, sutras that have been written for monks. And it's crazy when, when you realize that there's like basically a verse for every facet, every moment of the monk's day. Here's how you wash your hands. Here's how you pull the towel out that you're going to use to wash your hands. Here's how you tie your rope. And you realize that it's this wildly all-consuming, I don't want to say depersonalization, but you're basically like giving up all of that, like all the things that the world emphasizes, novelty, spontaneity, production, all that stuff is obliterated by this very simple way of living, which defines almost everything about the what, what you wear, how you sit, how you wake up, how you go to bed, how you move, all of it. So you surrender to this sort of rhythm. That's that the traditionalist camp. Theravadan. And then you you run into the mishap lineage, which Chogim Trumpa was part of, in Buddhism. And it's like, in this case, it's like exactly what you're saying. Your accidents are becoming the teachers. And the idea is that, well, no, the full spectrum of reality is sacred. You're, you, you can't find anything here that isn't part of the temple. And that it's once you start realizing that, then you begin to interact with reality in a way where some forms of Buddhism would look at what you were doing and say that that's not Buddhism. But the problem with that is in that mode of thinking, and I know this happens in art and music and writing, you lose your balance and become too chaotic. And there's not enough editing. There's not enough refining. So in this case, you've got like, pro, you know, projectile vomit coming out of you that you're imagining this is amazing because it's just pure and what I am right now that's spiritual bypass so it's like some mixture of the two those are the artists I love is are the ones who like do the CIA thing where they're like like with working with Pendleton it was like I could come to him with some insane idea and he would just take him like okay and then why don't we do this and then from that, it would narrow it down a little bit and then it would refine. And then after lots of sweating over something and trying to figure it, it would become something we were both happy with, but it fucking hurt. The chaos part feels great. But then taking that, figuring out how to like turn it into anything usable hurts. It's not quite as fun. You start feeling like you're like painting a house or doing to putting up drywall or some shit. That's to talk about things that don't get mentioned when it comes to creation is that dr the drudgery now knowing what what it's like if you want to make something and then get it to some degree of at least like coherence or digestibility from people other than you like i i've become familiar with something that i, I know you're familiar with which is like the blistering pain of the uh learning curve like when we were doing the midnight gospel 
and we were looking at the very first episode, I wanted to commit suicide. Like I was looking at it thinking- You're like, we have so much further to go. Yes. Yeah. This is irreparable almost. I don't know if it will work. That was like, I left this room where we were, the dailies is what they call it. You watch the watch it. And I left the room saying to the to many of the people on the crew who are way better at, it, at making, who are animators and under, thank God they were compassionate with because they'd seen everyone like me go through it. But I said, this is, this is not worth, this isn't working. Like this is really bad. And I just left and I went home and felt horrible. And was like, well, I guess we just failed here. Like oh, we had an idea of how this could work and it didn't, it was brutal. Well, there's nothing wrong with you saying this is bad. I mean, you were right. At least I'm assuming at that point. Yeah. It's important to have that character in the group that's like, no, not good enough, right? Yeah. They knew that too, probably, but they were like, this is just part of the beginning of the process yeah. every single time. Yeah, because they'd been through it way more than I had in, in that particular genre. Where I feel dumb is just because it's like, now I know whenever I'm hitting that place, it doesn't mean something has gone wrong. It means that I've worked hard enough to get to a place where I get to feel confused about the thing. That's the wall. And that's why people give up. And I can't say I blame them. Like in your mind, your fantasy is like, I'm gonna make the greatest thing of all time. And then when you get to the reality, it's like, no, you're not. So to me, the wall, that wall consists of agony of the, my ego, you know, that part of myself having to be reminded of like, come on, man, you're lucky you get to make anything at all. To me, what's cool about that spot is at the very least you get to think, man, there's been a lot of really great artists who've come to this fucking abyss. This is a landmark, not a wall. This is a place where all of them must have gone to and just sat and wanted to kill themselves. So I think there's a joy to it, but there's no cure. There's no way to make it better. It, it can't be better. It has to be brutal. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. My childhood was just more simple, I think. Being an only child, just mommy around. She wanted me to be happy. She wanted to give me whatever she could. 
And my dad being, you know, kind of like the scarier acid casualty just stayed in Miami. So I didn't really have this kind of threatening super ego character or whatever that a lot of kids have. So then when I got to college, I was going through my existential implosion. And it always seemed really important to me that the more I looked as to why I was suffering, I could never come up with the beginnings of any kind of reason. And that was like a big deal for me because it led me off in a certain direction philosophically. Whereas everybody I met all had reasons for why they were unhappy. Okay, okay yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And so that was a big part of what I was going through when you met me and, and like our particular philosophical arguments. You know, you had a lot of shape to everything and I just had no shape, you yeah. know, in terms of my universal map. <laughs> As I became happy, it seemed like a core tenet inevitably was that I thought my fate was pre-written or I felt that way. Mm. And, I, and it made me kick back and be happy for the first time in my life because cool. I was like, oh, I can actually trust this process. Cool. And you were saying elements of that, but also conversely, I feel like you were always wrestling with the background of your upbringing and all these things that you didn't like about it. Yeah. But I didn't have that. Right. So I guess part of my question is now that we're here and you've, you spent all this time educating yourself on the nature of happiness and the nature of unhappiness. Yeah. Do you feel like you've left behind a lot of those wrestling matches with your past and kind of come to a place that, you can trust this process. There's, it doesn't matter who my dad was. Mm. I was written into this destiny. Yeah. Have you become more like that? Or do you still find yourself thinking a lot about exactly what happened to you that yeah. made you this way? Yeah. How do you deal with those ideas now? I remember reading this from a Joe Gibbon Trump book, a child licking a razor blade coated with honey. The child tastes his own blood, feels the pain of the cut, but also tastes the sweetness of the honey all at the same time. From that lineage's perspective, this is the beautiful idea that one of those threads doesn't negate the other. So that I, I, I allow all of that stuff, all, all the trauma and the growing, as a father, the growing recognition of like, God damn, I can't fucking believe that happened. Like, that's crazy. My uh, father walked in on my mom having sex with a priest that she met at an Episcopalian retreat and got a shotgun out of his car and was gonna kill my mom and the priest and then kill himself, but the shotgun jammed. This is when my brother and I were in, <laughs> we were in Florida with my aunt. Annie was the big hit movie of the summer. And we had no idea that we almost became orphans. And then my mom pulls up in the Oldsmobile after like almost being murdered for infidelity by my PTSD dad and takes us up to North Carolina. And so the more I allow myself to really sink into what that life was like for a kid, the chaos that must have been in that life and the uncertainty that must have been in that life and the 
madness. Like, you're gonna kill somebody for cheating on you? Like, you're gonna go full fucking Jimi Hendrix? And also, my mom is like, you were fucking a... Why were you having sex with a priest on the couch when my dad was at? Like, it's so sordid. So I look at that, and I, I just think, like, now as a dad, I, I'm far from a perfect dad. You can't be a perfect parent, but I know that if I walked in on Aaron fucking a priest, I just think my reaction would be like more like, what are you doing? This is crazy. Did Jimi Hendrix kill somebody with a shotgun? No, it's that song, Hey Joe. That was like a whole weird subgenre of music for a little bit. Jilted dudes going to kill their, like, the woman who cheated on him. In the way that there's that whole awful subgenre of, of people bemoaning the fact that some girl they want to fuck is underage. You know, you could make a whole album of, I've just of never that. heard that expression like, what are you in prison for, bro? He's like, I went full Jimi Hendrix on somebody. <laughs> There was some subtle aspects of like maybe unconscious trauma that my mom described or something when she kind of pulled me away from my dad, but I have no memory of suffering at all. That's not great. being around him. Right. It was it was great. And and uh because I identified him maybe partially as like a stranger in some cosmic way. Mm. I never really thought I had to depend on him or had any sort of great attachment to him. But, I mean, maybe that's partially something to do with who my dad was. He was a ranger in the Marines, so he came from a similar kind of mentality. Yep. And he was more like an animal, like a dominant beast that could tear you apart. And he would kind of, you could feel it. Yep. I have an image that I would get in my mind of him crouched down with blood dripping from his mouth and some sort of flesh like him eating people. Wow. This guy wouldn't flinch or blink if he had to do that. That's the way he approached the world. And everyone knew that. He was a dangerous person if he wanted to be. There were situations that would happen like stories when I was um, an infant and he'd see someone like robbing a lady on the on the sidewalk and he would just pull up on the sidewalk and like full on like try to run them over step on their neck pull out a shotgun hold it at their head and i would just watch the whole thing jesus christ yeah so there's a reason why i don't want to live with him there's a reason why i don't want to trust him all the time so maybe i just thought like well you know life with my mom makes perfect sense i get to be a little god You know, other kids were always, if you're an only child, other kids are always guilt tripping you on that. Yeah. And then maybe it did foster a little bit of an ego dream. One thing I think is interesting about the difference between us there is that I thought as a child that I could be a star or needed to be a star. or I just watched TV and I thought, you know, that was an an available reality. Yeah. Just like I think probably a a lot of little kids. But I never thought of you that way. I never thought that you pictured yourself as marvelous. You didn't seem to need to have that kind of ego dream. I didn't. Fuck no. Yeah. My mom wanted me to like, she wanted me to have a normal structured life. And and also even the idea of like not having a boss, that was never taught to me. Like, you know, you, 
depending on some people are born into a, a family where their parents have started their own business and so they just see that that's a possibility and some people are born into a family where that hasn't happened and won't happen and they just imagine what you do is you get a job and you have a boss and hopefully the boss likes you the boss gives you an advance every once in a while and you grow in the company i don't know real basic stuff the idea of starting your own business is something insane people do or like you look at that fucking kid on the bus who brings the candy and is selling it you know that kid who's like always like got like the weird candies that's a young kid who's smart enough to recognize supply and demand coming home with just wads of dough in his pocket where is that kid now though really shark tank that's one of the fucking sharks they're all those entrepreneurs it's not like they just get out of college and become like that they like from the get-go they're like doing leasing lemonade stands to other kids and shit my mom was dating this cop that was scary because we almost like there was a seemed like a small chance she would marry this cop and then i would have to join families and i get these two new southern brothers children of cop and i was just like oh my god i don't know man one of these dudes one of the sons and he would wear suits and he loved donald trump he was like obsessed with trump he explained to me in detail this business plan he had like he was always trying to get a meeting with trump this is like 1989 or something yeah okay. the late 80s he's trying to get a meeting with trump at trump tower to pitch him an idea he told me like no one had thought of he's like there is no exotic bird store at trump tower <laughs> wow. so he wanted to get a meeting with trump to try to sell exotic i want to know birds. where he's at now too i would love to know that i don't think it worked out for him but that way of surprise, thinking, surprise. yeah, like it's essentially like some form of entrepreneurial outsider art. He had that thing, that charismatic thing where when you're hearing him, you're like, this could really happen right. for him. And it does for some people. Yeah. And, and, and anyway, all I'm saying is like, no, I never got that. I, there was never a sense. The idea of being on TV or some shit like that seemed ridiculous. But is that weird then that I sat in this tiny little apartment and dreamed that it was available for me and I was pretty much totally wrong? To make that dream real, all those different hurdles up the mountain, I just had to push through and enjoyed most of none of it because I had to make that fucking thing real. Yeah. Because I had to make myself feel right that, you know, I did have a place in the universe. I had to, to write the situation. Yeah, I had to make my dream real. But then for you, you kind of got to a, a peak of a mountain, but you didn't bring that kind of energy that's like, I have to make this real. That's, that's a weird difference. This is why I love the lineage of Buddhism I studied. I love that it's called the mishap lineage. I was interviewing this Buddhist teacher, Sharon Salzberg, and someone asked her, because they always hear me rambling about Shogun Trump and they asked her if she'd ever encountered him and she told this great story about how when he opened Naropa she was up there with Ram Dass and she asked Shogun Trump a question and she said he put his head down for a little bit and then like smiled and said to her something along the lines of I think it's best that you follow the path of accident and I love that like because for me that kind of helped me drop a lot of guilt I've, I've felt which, because I didn't have that solid like this is what I'm gonna do and 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 
and I felt really weird about that. Like there's something subpar about that kind of life or, you know what I mean? Just a sense of like, well, you know, is it, is it good to just kind of stumble, stumble from one thing to the next? Wouldn't it be better to have some direct like plan? And a lot of very, very successful people I know are, are like that because of the, this, at the very least, a discovery of what it means to work hard and and but you generally a, a real plan and a real series of intelligent decisions to get them to a goal that they had envisioned in their mind and there's something really one i think there's something just classically beautiful about that and so for me it was like a stu stumbling onto the comedy store because i needed a job and then meeting rogan and then like stupidly getting engaged and then getting completely dumped and then having to live with Joe for a little while and then like just bouncing around like a, a pinball in some weird pinball machine and somewhere in that learning something real and, and some learning something that's the same thing you know or anybody knows who wants to make something good and it's really not exciting at all unfortunately and it's really just a boring truth which is like you just have to you have to work really hard. I don't think that you can avoid that because I tried. I think I was trying to find some shortcut, but it, it always just came down like, no, you really just, um, you just have to work hard. You're gonna have to like discipline yourself to work really hard. And that's such a boring thing. It, like, you know, it, all the self-help shit, it's like, that's great, but you're gonna have to work hard. If you are thinking like, I, I want a, a life of an artist, and some people are thinking that because they're like, I just don't want to work a day job. And those people are going to be sorely disappointed when they realize that they're going to actually have to work a day job. It's just the difference is it's going to be their business and they're going to have to work really fucking hard. They say that's what John Lennon's central motivation was, was that he was so pathologically deeply lazy. His obsession with not wanting to work a day job is kind of weirdly what drove him to be a rock and roll star. Yeah. Which then ended up as the pinball bounced, he kind of saw an opening. So it's ironic you tell that story. You know, it's almost like you just sort of ignored process and then just sort of like saw an opening, you know, yeah. which is what John Lennon, it's not like John Lennon can play guitar that well. Right. It's not like he can sing that well. Yeah. But he didn't need to. It's really important to people like me who play music that the earliest pillars of our model were people who actually didn't need to be that technical right. and who just mm. saw an opening. Right, I see what you're saying. It formed the way we all see this industry and this, this art form. So the very tip top of the mountain peak is this guy who wasn't that good at it. That's amazing. Right, as you're saying. Because he understood the concept of lowering the walls and just being him and cutting through all of the process, right? Yeah. So in a weird way, you just told a story about how you didn't necessarily need to busy yourself with a lot of the kind of technical work. But right. once you saw how much spiritual work was involved, then you saw a whole other mount that you needed to climb. But you, you sort of were in touch with what you needed to do because you'd been working on yourself for a long time by that point. Yeah. Man. Not that you had achieved any great thing, no. but you saw what it was. 
When I started working with my meditation teacher, he identified the pinball nature of my life. He's a musician too. He won a, one of the musical awards called Grammys for Midnight at the Oasis. Actually, he taught me how to play scales on the guitar. And that was part of him teaching me how to, uh, about meditation too. Like, learn this first. And with the practice he teaches me, it's scales. It's just basic, completely run-of-the-mill. Rudiments, yeah. Rudiments. And I he, love the idea of a rudiment because I think I've learned that if you become really refined at just a really solid, simple piece of the rudiments, like not something that's clever that wins the race. Yeah. If you just become really good at the, the core tenant of something, yeah. there are ways in which no one can possibly defeat you. You know, it, yes. it, it's just a really interesting thing to do because it teaches you that maybe you're not good at all the other things that other people are zooming by you with, but if you could get good at this one thing, they'd be like, whoa, I, how do you yeah. even do that? Yeah. And you're like, just the rudiment, just That's that. It. Yeah. People who see the end product of a lifetime of rudiments and then they try to just immediately become the end product. You know, a, a child puts on a fireman's outfit. That's not a fireman. That's a child wearing a fireman's outfit. And so that's the thing that happens with people is they wear the outfit, but they haven't done any of the thing leading up to it. And weirdly, we live in an age now where you could just wear the outfit. Some people will just see someone wearing the outfit and be like, I guess they must be good and look around. The Keith Rainier effect happens. You could just start off with like 10 people, see somebody wearing the outfit and they just decide like they're good. And then 10 more people see the outfit and oh shit, they got fans. There must be something. And the next thing you know, you see that, that, that terrible thing that appears sometimes. So what you're saying and what, what David teaches me, I think is like, it's useful, not even as a result based thing, but it's useful as an evolutionary tool. Imagine if you saw the pole vaulting pole up there that, that you're supposed to go over and you didn't want to learn how to use the pole to get over. Yeah. I'm not saying like you even have to learn scales, but like at some point you have to become accustomed with the entire process. You know, you can't yeah. just like levitate over the fucking thing. No. For me, music has been very difficult for me. I'm not naturally musical. It's painful, and but what I like about the pain when I was learning how to do the scales and just trying to get the muscle memory to do it, just the basic scales over and over and over and over again until my hand was doing it on its own. I wasn't having to think about it. And then like feeling that pain before that was happening, like the legitimate burn. And then now anytime I'm working on anything, whatever I'm working on may be different, but that burn is always the same to the point where when the burn appears, and where I'm getting frustrated, I'm like, great, you did it. You're generating heat. That's heat. You're doing something now. Somehow encoded in to these basic, formal, simple rudiments is secret information that's only accessible through tormenting yourselves with them. It's like, it's not just that you're learning the scales. It's that now you're hearing music differently. And now that you're hearing music differently, it's inspiring you in different ways. But then not just that. Like I remember, well, this is when I was on a pretty intense ketamine bender. And I remember like looking up like scales, like where did that word come from? And it's like a word that apparently like came from a type of cup that was made from a skull. 
and then you're like looking at it and you're like what the fuck and then you start realizing like music itself is like a is literally occultism the grand staff in between chaos i was like holy mother fucking shit man each of these scales has a spirit inside of it if you listen to like a d scale versus a c scale they each have their own spirit and locked inside of them an energy a kind of like thing that comes out with each of them and then i just got really freaked out and was like whoa man it's like this is a way to it's a conduit to the to the spirit world and that each of these scales invokes a type of energetic change in you not just listening them but learning them by learning them you're invoking them and then i feel like my ability to make songs got a little better deepened yeah my favorite thing is watching a real musician like pick up one of my instruments like you did with this guitar and just like and it's like magic to watch that flowing thing and to think god damn that must feel so good to be able to like communicate in such a instantaneously beautiful pure way when i picked it up i played some e minor chord which pretty much means you're doing the least amount of things to strum a chord right so yeah. you're suppressing the least amount of strings so for an acoustic guitar if you really want to hear how good it can sound, you don't want to like, you know, bar a chord and, and like put all your fingers down yeah. on it. You want the entire thing to ring out and show you how that guitar was built and how it really sounds, right? Yeah. So isn't that interesting metaphorically that the less you're doing, that the bigger and more That's pretty cool. that thing is going to sound. Yeah. So all the technical stuff you learned throughout your journey up that mountain is gonna deliver you back to the beginning where John Lennon is sitting there with the simplest chord. Yeah. So that's so cool that you can never escape those rudiments. No way. When teachers are teaching like basic math, they, they, they're not gonna mention like, well, do you all know about Pythagoras and that they believe numbers were spirits and it was like, we don't even know if there was a Pythagoras or if it was a cult. It was probably a cult based on numbers and they were probably drinking really weird psychedelics and they thought math was a language of God. No one did that for me in a math class. They were just like, one plus one is two, two plus two is four. And you know what I mean? And like, so this thing that is like, the most fucking bizarre mystical mystical thing yeah. that we don't even know where it came from we don't really we don't know the the progenitors of it we're all occultists none of that gets conveyed until way later so you don't understand that oh yes this is the reason we're going to do the basic stuff with you first is because we don't want you to burn your fucking face off on this other stuff which is why I love about forms of buddhism there's like teachings that need to come from a teacher they, they you, you can get the book online you can look at it if you want but you can blow your you can blow your face off with it you need a teacher there to like help you the writing is just one piece of the thing an interesting parallel is the two boys that shot their faces off when listening to judas priest do you remember that oh yeah you seen the documentary? I know, but I remember hearing about that. I mean, they this is, these are the kids who sued Judas Priest, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. pretty harrowing. As far as I remember in the documentary, one of the kids lived, I believe, and like he speaks to the camera with his blown oh off my face. God. 
in a strange way, it's like they took the Judas Priest lyrics literally just like you just said. Yeah. They needed a teacher to understand the depth of the yeah. metaphor, right? Yeah, man. Anybody who hasn't blown their face off in some way, who's got our kind of mind, we're lucky. What always happens to me is that if I bring in a recording I've done that's greatly flawed, where I broke all the rules and I'm bringing it in to get it repaired, the person who never would have let me break any of those rules in the recording, in the mix, hits play, sits back and listens to what I've done, and they love all the things that are so wrong because they can't identify, they don't know what happened. They don't know what I did wrong, but they hear it and they're like, God, that's an interesting texture or that's a weird decision. And they get all excited. They're like, no, this is cool. This is cool. And I'm like, yeah, because you wouldn't have let me do any of this stuff. It's all wrong. But they love it because it reminds them of a time in the beginning when they started and there were billions of options and beautiful accidental things would happen. That doesn't happen anymore to them because they're so myopic. They've reduced everything and purposely bottlenecked every situation, right? So that's always laughable to me, that they always love all the wrong things because they don't know what happened secretly. I mean, I don't tell them, yeah, I did the thing that you told me never to do. But they enjoy it. It's like, it's an erotic option. It's, it's like this thing that they've, they've always said is bad in their religion. You know, but they're like, oh, man, that's kind of the best thing. Well, this is what I love about you. This is what I love about people like you. And this is what I love about all the mystics that are like that is because, you know, not only are they like usually doing something completely counter to what at least appears to be the methodology, if you want to call it that, or the rites or the rituals of whatever particular lineage or of religion they represent, but people who have been living according to the rules like kick them out scorn them because i think when people come into contact with the wild thing that's real not wild in front of vincent's ear pretend, you know what i mean <laughs> i got no beard left but my heart is in my chest yeah that kind of thing i'm talking about when you run in the real thing what's dangerous about it is that it doesn't care it's not there to be domesticated. It's not there to be wrapped up by somebody's fear and tied down in some shitty fucking leashed life that looks like the way things look like before it. And it doesn't care. And what's even worse is that it also doesn't necessarily care, in not in an evil way, what, what happens to you from contacting it. It doesn't have time to like worry that it's gonna damage you by being itself. It can't, it won't, they won't, they don't. And so that's why you hear when people get, some people get around them and they get wounded. They, they, you know, because in the same way I've been wounded. So since we've kind of diagrammed that I sat in my little room and imagined that I was going to be able to become Paul McCartney for some reason, which sometimes led me, you know, to believe that that's the source of all my pain. 
you know, that like that was the big mistake I made. Yeah. Was taking that leap of faith. It was it was a stupid thing to do. Sometimes I, I think I've cursed that assumption. But let's go back to you sitting at your house, you know, maybe you were eight, maybe you were eleven. What were the first when you think of like encountering like maybe magical states of mind, but that made you feel like you had special access to them in any way. Mm. I often picture you as someone who was pretty self-loathing early on. So was there a breakthrough moment? Do you remember, like, I just want to know selfishly, was there a point at which you were like, I can do something special and and better, and I believe in myself secretly. Okay, maybe secretly, but not, I mean, like, I when I start, I would remember, I would memorize truly tasteless jokes. <laughs> I see, but I just didn't know, like, all the things I was doing or things any comedian I've talked to did, mm-hmm. but I just didn't even know. Those were exercises. That, yeah, yeah, I didn't know that, and I didn't know that, like, watching holy grail or whatever over and over and over and like or that being like hyper excited every time the new national lampoon showed up and like reading it like it was scripture i never some kids were smart enough to make the shift like what you did from like oh i don't just have to be a consumer of this like i could actually maybe make some of this stuff or like when i was like at summer camp and you know, writing dumb skits for the kids and then like feeling like I knew how to make it funny more than other people did or like, you know what I mean? All those things. I knew I was funny, but I never, I don't, I don't even think secretly, maybe secretly. I don't know that I was ever had the like confidence to be like, I belong there. Right. It was just more like, oh yeah, this is a way you can make people laugh. You can make people laugh. You could do this thing where you're making, like what you were telling me, like Charles Manson learned to do in prison. You know, that thing. You learn how to do a thing. Or Eddie Murphy or Andy Kaufman when they're eight in front of their family. It's, I mean, you know, you think they're Eddie Murphy, Andy Kaufman, but when they're eight, they just did a thing to make their, their uncle laugh. Exactly. That's all it was. That's it. And, yeah. and, if, and I think that, like, I think I had wonderful parents. I'm not bitching about my parents, but I do think that if you end up in a, in a home, where somebody sees something like like that and you're lucky enough that either you're in a home where that that's been a person has done that and it's like oh okay you're in the national lampoon well hey have you ever seen this before show them like a book steve martin wrote why don't you write three minutes of comedy and perform it for me tonight or like mm-hmm. little things like that with a kid making it just completely normal to express yourself artistically mm-hmm. and but then also Get, not giving them the sense that everything they do is perfect because that's the worst thing you can do mm-hmm. for an artist. Anyway, the point is, I don't think I got that. And I'm not saying like I, that's a fault of my parents. It's like insane for anyone, much less someone who's like in the ninth or 10th grade to imagine that you are going to be able to take your talent and break through in like one of the most competitive industries and most desired professions, not just comedy, being a musician, being an artist, it's fucking impossible. So I could see how a parent would be like, no. And especially a parent who doesn't understand that you have to suck in the beginning. Right, right. So a parent sees what you're doing is like, no, (laughs) you're not good at that. And it's like, no shit, I'm not good at it. How could I be? I'm a kid, I don't know how to do this. 
I don't think there's any one breakthrough moment, man. I think there's been times when I've been delighted to find out that I can work hard and make things better and good enough to be published in some form. I don't know if that's a breakthrough or not, but it's like for me just seeing that, oh yeah, I can make good stuff that I am comfortable putting out into the world. I, and, and then I don't know if that's a breakthrough or just a sense of like, this is what I do. I don't know when that happened, but it went from me being like, is this what I do? Mm-hmm. So this is what I do. Right, right, right. Huge and shift, actually. That's a pretty big shift, man. In around fourth, fifth, sixth grade, you know, my, my best friend was this kid, Brian. I think about him at least, I mean, multiple times a week. And, and he's like this really important person to me, which is weird because he's just completely not profound as far as I... If I met him today, I don't think I, I could find yeah. any profundity in him. But he was so mean to me. And like <laughs> the ways he was mean to me meant so much to me. It was a really important part of my approach to the world. When he would smack me down about anything. Oh, you don't like that salt and pepper song? Like, you're a fucking idiot, you know? <laughs> And in ways, he was always right. You know, Easy e he taught me, like, the beauty of Easy e or yeah. something. And I would be like, wow, this is fucking where the pulse is at. Yeah. That kid symbolized so much about, like, the ceiling over my head because I was kind of, like, not getting it or something in his eyes. And so eventually we started to grow apart around the beginning of seventh grade. I didn't need him anymore for some reason. I don't know why. And uh, I was doing okay, sort of socially and meeting new people. And one day we were hanging out again. And I, I, you know, was just casually telling some kid, like, my mom bought me a drum set. It's crazy. I've got it in the living room. And he just chimed in and was like, no, she didn't. <laughs> and I was like, kind of confused. In many of those situations, I just, I was like a bully seems so powerful so you just are like sure whatever you're right but in this circumstance i was just was like why why can he not imagine that i have a fucking drum set in my living room and he was like you don't have one and i was like i mean i guess we can go over to my house after school and i can show you yeah. the drum set he had no interest in it he didn't want to know about it he just was like you can't do that Wow. And so after school, me and him and the other kid I was talking to all like opened my front door and there's this horrible, shitty hundred dollar <laughs> drum set. Yeah. And he was just like, oh, <laughs> and he looked so sad. Wow. And I've never thought about why he was sad. I think I just assumed he was ashamed that he had stuck his neck out and he was wrong. But now I think, God, you know, what he was really sad about was I was about to enter a world where I could articulate myself and do whatever I wanted. And he was unable to believe that he could play something. Just that. At his house, Aerosmith would come on the TV and we'd be like, what the hell is this? I mean, we didn't even know what they were doing. We were just like, do you like this? I don't know. It was just him seeing that drum set was just him being like, fuck. 
Well, I think you torture people a bit. In college, I was, when I saw you making music, that's the first time I'd ever met anyone who was actually making music like that. I'd never see, I'd never met, I'd never seen that. You were making these, this amazing music. It sounded good and it was like you had a process and that's threatening in a weird way. You think it made you feel sad like Brian when he saw the drum set? Like you actually felt sad? Yeah, I felt like it's hard to explain that kind of jealousy. I guess sadness is like a simple way to put it. It's a lot, it's a whole, like you're younger than me and you're like making beautiful music and you're looking at things like that and you're like, that's something you can do. It's like, you know, they say you find life on one other planet. Now there's life throughout the whole universe. You meet an artist who's making really good art. And up until that point, you've just been consuming the end result, but you're seeing the process. You're like, holy fuck, there's a way to do that. And you were playing, giving me all this great music to listen to and letting me fuck around with your four track and stuff. And which always felt weirdly special to me and like we and like scary seeing that. I think that began a nice paradigm shift for me where it's like, oh, there are artists who make good stuff and you know one of them and maybe, you know, maybe there's a way that you can make stuff too. That's all. And so your friend witnessing that, that moment, which is kind of monumental in your life, probably just like felt like... He saw someone leaving the stable that we were in together. Yeah. He saw them going out into the world and like you know, meeting new friends and doing new things yeah. all without him. And he dug his heels in, in his tone, you could hear, he's like, I'm not gonna make myself vulnerable to that process. It's too hard or something. When Ram Dass talks about presidents that he doesn't like, he always talks about like how he feels a great compassion for them for all that heavy karma. And when you think about how your friend who was just for whatever dumb reason deciding to play the part of Mara like the archetypical part of the thing that was trying to keep you from, in some tiny little way, trying to deflect you from your destiny. And you think about, in a weird way, thank God for those people who stood in our way and realized if not, maybe if not for them, you wouldn't have had that extra bit of spice in you. Jumped higher over the hurdle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Judas, we needed him. Mm -hmm. Mara. We needed Mara to tempt the Buddha for mm -hmm. the realization that, and you know what I mean? And so suddenly those people in the rear view mirror are like sacred figures in your life who had to bear the rotten burden of trying to knock you down for no fucking reason other than their stupid fear. It's so disgusting, but I do get off when I realize like, oh, Someone's literally trying to suppress me. Mm -hmm. Raise the stakes for me. Make it harder on yeah, me. Yeah. Because then I'll become fucking Michael Jordan. Yeah, exactly. Whatever that is, it has a lot of different forms. One, you know, one of the forms is just like that. It's that story of like the person who was like meditating out in the woods to impress his guru to gain some power. So he's meditating out there for like 50 years and finally he learns to walk on water. And he gets to the guru and says, I can walk on water, master. And the guru's like, the fairy costs a nickel. <laughs> I am a lonesome hobo without family or friends. Where another man's life might begin, that's exactly where my 
except begging on the street. Well, once I was rather prosperous, there was nothing I did lack. 